Today is the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent's the season when we, by exercises, by attitude, we kind of set ourselves apart, we simplify, we deny, and we prepare ourselves to, you know, to celebrate Easter, which we'll do in a few weeks. And we're starting a new series of lessons today that we're calling Finding Jesus. We're not calling it Finding Jesus because he's lost. We're calling it Finding Jesus because we sometimes have difficulty seeing him amidst the clutter of our lives. I was reminded this week when I was thinking about this of Diane and I went on our honeymoon to Bermuda and we saw this little brochure for this thing we wanted to do. I thought it was going to be kind of like scuba diving light. And I, I've always wanted to dive, so I talked Diane into this. It was not like that at all. They took you out on this boat. It's the goofiest thing we've ever done. They took you out on this boat, and <laughs> they had this monstrously huge, like 400-pound helmet that they put over the top of you. It was like Jacques Cousteau from the 1920s. And they put this over you, and then a giant tube that fed oxygen into this bubble that's around your head. And there's a little piece of glass, you know, about the size of half of a hand width that you're looking through, seeing fish, except you can't see the fish because they're dropping all kinds of food in front of you to make the fish. And you go down, you go like three feet under the water, and they're feeding the tube, oxygen's coming down. And we get down under the water, and suddenly I, I thought, where in the world is dying? <laughs> and I lost my wife. And I couldn't see her because there's food and the tubes are everywhere and again this big old monstrous thing is, and there's only like this much space to look and looking around trying to find out. our life sometimes becomes that kind of activity there's so much stuff and clutter that we can't see we can't find what's most important and Jesus and our spiritual connection the cross is literally hidden from us. So we're going to spend some weeks trying to dial that back in this morning. In particular, we're going to look at stuff and just how that stuff can literally be an impediment to our finding ourselves and connecting spiritually. So let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today. We are so honored to have come before you and been part of offering up to Rand Sebastian. And in doing that, we remember your illustration, Jesus, and we remember you saying that's what real spirituality looks like. It just looks like somebody completely, almost helpless, fully surrendered, sitting in the arms of their dad and resting and slobbering and every now and then crying out and they don't even know why and mom and dad just meeting that need and So we acknowledge this morning, Lord, that we spend too much effort and energy trying to control, and we also spend an awful lot of effort and energy filling up the empty spaces in our life, not with you, but with stuff. And we ask today that you would speak to that and clarify for us and help us simplify. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What's in the box, you ask? You know, I'm not sure, but it it must be important since I've moved it seven times in five years and I paid to store it for the last 12 months. Well, actually only 11 months since I got the first month for a dollar. That's a pretty good deal, right? But you know, sometimes my stuff really stresses me out. It takes so much time to organize it, uh, to sort it, to move it. 
takes so much space. And then there's the time I spend staring at it while thinking about organizing it. But whatever, I, I guess I'm just a typical American, right? Did you know that the average American house has more than doubled in size in the last 60 years? In 1950, the average house was about 985 square feet. In 2010, the average house was about 2,400 square feet. Remarkably, it seems that these larger houses are still not big enough to accommodate all of our stuff. Never fear, though. If your house isn't big enough to store all your stuff, you can always rent more space in a personal storage unit. In 2013, the self-storage business was a $24 billion industry offering $2.3 billion, with a capital B, square feet of rental space. That's more than seven square feet of storage space for every man, woman, and child in the United States. That's big enough for every American to stand all at the same time under the roof of these storage facilities. That's a big win for the self-storage industry. But what does it mean for the average American? Does owning all this stuff mean we're happier, better off, or more fulfilled? The more I move this box around, the more I wonder if I really need this stuff. Am I holding on to this stuff so tightly that my hands aren't open to holding things that really matter? Am I missing out on what's important because I'm spending my time and resources trying to impress people I don't really know with stuff that I don't really need? How can I expect to find what's essential in life if I have trouble finding my own keys and my cell phone on a regular basis? So what's in the back box, you ask? Well, I'm not sure, but whatever it is, I'm willing to give it up for what matters, what's essentially important, something fulfilling that will do more than just fill up my home and my head with more stuff. Stand with me if you would. I have said before on Sunday mornings that there are passages in the Bible that would strike any normal person as boring. Some of you are geeky enough that you find even those passages not boring. But, but frankly, there are passages in the Bible that are boring. And, and when we read the Bible, we often struggle to find ourselves and real connection in the Bible. Well, what I want to do this morning is read you a passage of Scripture in which a northern Virginian took a time machine back to the day of Jesus and actually found him and confronted Jesus with a question. You and I are in this passage more fully embodied in this passage than perhaps any other passage in Scripture. So I'm going to read this morning from a really remarkable encounter that Jesus had with someone that the Bible describes as a rich young ruler. This is from Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 27. I'd love for you to follow along. Read on the screen if, if you don't have a Bible. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, 
do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. And one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Oh my goodness, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Well, who can be saved then? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. You may be seated. We're not going to take long this morning, but there are a couple of things from this story that I think it's absolutely imperative that you and I get. The first thing we've got to get is we've got to comprehend the reality of the impediment. And then we've got to get some relief. We've got to know how to deal with or how to get relief from the burden of the impediment. So first, let's talk about the reality of the, the impediment. Jesus really does good counseling work here. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Jesus kind of challenges the initial question. He says, why do you call me good? And Jesus isn't saying that because he doesn't think he's good. Jesus is like a good therapist. He's trying to poke at the questioner. He's trying to find the soft spot. He's really looking for what the real issue is. What's the real question? What is the presenting problem? This account actually occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of the first biographies of Jesus include this encounter. And Matthew says of this guy that he's rich and he's young. And Luke tells us he was a ruler and he was almost definitely good-looking, right? Because it's difficult to be rich and young and not be good-looking. There are some people who pull it off, but it's very difficult. This guy, no doubt, lived in uh, Ashburn. He might have lived in South Riding. The Stone Ridge people tell me that South Riding is a little more uppity. So he might have lived in South Riding. And I want you to know that when he comes to Jesus, this was not a typical question that he asks. Now Jesus initially, his first volley, is like a typical rabbi responding to someone who's come to him and asked a question. You know, Jesus sort of challenges him with the law. You know, well, do this and this and this. He kind of recites the law for him. But the man has not asked Jesus typical question. We find another instance in Scripture where someone does ask Jesus a typical question. Somebody comes to Jesus at one point and says, Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest law? And this is the kind of question that the rabbis love to wax poetic about and demonstrate how much they knew of the law. But this question, now this is a very personal question. This guy is, and I think Jesus recognizes it right away, this guy is looking to fill empty places. And we all have empty places. We have empty places that are, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. We have empty places that are created in us by disappointment. We have empty places that are created in us by the death of dreams. We have empty places that are created in us by just how difficult life can sometimes be. We have empty places that are created in us by hurt. 
with someone ending a relationship with us or a career or a marriage going in a direction that we had not anticipated. This guy has empty places and he's come to Jesus and you know what? He's essentially asked Jesus, how can I have a connection with God? How can I have real meaning in my life? I know from previous conversations that you've had with other people, Jesus, you believe in eternal life. You believe that we were created for forever. And not only so, but you've said some wild things, Jesus. You've suggested that the hint of that eternal kind of living is available to us right now. So how can I have that? How do I get the kind of life that I've heard you talk... I heard a sermon you gave one time on a hill... How do I get the kind of life that you were talking about then? I've heard some answers, that you've, the incredible dialogue that you've had with people, and other people have told me some of the things that you've said about how to really live. How do I get that? And Jesus ends up talking about money. <laughs> this guy asks, how do I have life? And Jesus ends up talking about money. Money is an incredibly important issue for us, and Jesus knows it. I want you to consider our problem with sex as a culture and as a human race. Consider the difficulty we have with it, the trouble it gets us into. I want you to consider our emotional problems. Consider anger and depression and worry and the kind of trouble that causes you, the burden that causes you. I want you to consider our problems with bitterness and lack of forgiveness I heard someone say recently, and I suspect they're right, that Jesus spent more time talking about money than he did about all of those combined. In fact, he said at one point, look, let's be honest, where your treasure is, that's really where your heart is. That's what's most important to you. He's essentially saying to us in Northern Virginia, if you want to know what's really important to you, then look at your checkbook. Nobody has a checkbook anymore, but look at your bank statement or look at whatever it is you use these days, you crazy young people. And the problem is not money, of course. Money is not intrinsically bad. Matthew, for instance, was one of the first followers of Jesus, and he wrote one of the biographies. Matthew followed Jesus in a radical kind of way. He left his whole life to follow Jesus, but Jesus never said to Matthew, I want you to leave everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Jesus didn't say that to Matthew. In fact, not long after uh, Matthew decides to follow Jesus, one of the next instances we hear about Matthew having a party in his home for Jesus and inviting all of his friends to come hear Jesus talk because this guy's amazing. Matthew hasn't given up his home. And money and the stuff that money buys is not really intrinsically the problem. The problem is how we think about money and how we use money. We think about money and its stuff-buying capacity as if it really had the power to make us happier and more satisfied. Can I say that again? We really do think about money and its stuff-buying capacity as if it had the power to make us happier. We spend enormous amount of time planning for it, thinking about it, thinking what it could do if we had it, imagining how we can get it and get more of it. And when we try to use money to get stuff to fill up our emptiness, then money becomes an impediment. Money and its stuff-buying capacity gets in the way of us finding the life that we want, and we end up going back in time and standing with this guy before Jesus and saying, 
how can I get the life that you've talked about? And Jesus ends up looking at us and saying, well, it's really simple. It's not, it's not easy. But you've got to get rid of every, everything. And then come follow me. When we see this, when we come to understand this, and sometimes we do, every now and then we get this kind of clarity. When we come to see this, when we come to understand that, oh, it's not about my stuff, it's usually too late. We're usually in crisis. We've got a couple of different small groups at Gateway who are right now going through a marriage study, and Tom Bellino was telling me uh, the other day that he's going through one with a group, uh, I think Laura and Jeff Maffey may be meeting in their home, and they're working their way through a DVD, and Tom was telling me this unbelievable illustration that the, the guy in this uh, DVD was offering up. He has a bottle of water like this, and then he opens it up, and he, I won't do it, but starts shaking it. If this were our building, I would do it. But he starts shaking it. Water goes everywhere. And then he looks at the group and he says, why, you know, why does water come out of the bottle? And your tendency is to say, because you're shaking it, you idiot. And the answer is, that's wrong. Water is coming out of the bottle. This is genius. Water is coming out of the bottle because he put water in the bottle. If he had put orange juice in the bottle, then orange juice would have come out. If he had put green slime in the bottle, then green slime would have come out. And when we put stuff in our emptiness and we get shaken, the fruit of that stuff comes out. How big of a problem is money really? How big of an impediment is it? We've got to get our minds, we've got to comprehend the reality of the impediment. How big of a problem is money really? Jesus tells his disciples that it's almost impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, many of you have been around church for a while. For some of you, this is pretty new. But for many of you have been around church for a while, and you may have heard this story a number of times, and we have a tendency to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, you know, thank you, Jesus. But you and I are people that need to stand under this word and let it sear our conscience. We're some of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. And Jesus says it's really almost impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I want you to know that this guy who came to Jesus was a really good guy. Jesus says, he says, what do I do to have the life that you've been talking about? Jesus is poking him. So Jesus says, okay, you know the commandments. And then he lists the commandments, interestingly, that are all about deceit and defrauding and stealing and don't murder. And then the guy says, I've kept these since my youth. And Jesus does not say, oh, you arrogant idiot. Of course you've not kept them since. <laughs> what? No, Jesus acknowledges. It. I suspect that Jesus thinks this guy is a really religious guy. He's a very good guy. From almost birth, he's been following the commandments. And still, for some reason, it hasn't been enough. This goodness is not enough. In fact, it may actually be an impediment. It's part of his self-salvation project. And what happens next is Mark tells us that this guy went away sad. And this is one of those rare places where I think we use the NIV translation here at Gateway, and there are a lot of different English translations of the Bible. And this is one of those places where the NIV translation might let us down. 
The older King James Version says there, he went away grieved. This word is used another time in the New Testament, and it's the time when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, at this point, knows what's going to happen in his life. He knows he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be killed. And not only so, but he can already begin to feel the searing separation that he's going to experience from his Father, with whom from eternity he's had oneness. And what it says in that instance is Jesus was grieved. And so what this young man has done, what this rich young ruler has done is the part that the Father played for Jesus. Jesus eternally, one with the Father, and himself being a rich young ruler. But we'll get to that in a second. And then the relationship and the connection that he had with the Father. And what that connection did for Jesus. And then the thought of that connection being severed and broken. What this young man has done is he has put money in that place. He's asked money to fill that part of his life and his heart. He's asked for the stuff that money can buy to fill up the empty place in his life. So when he gets depressed, when he gets really discouraged, he goes on a shopping spree because it makes him feel better. And he adds to his stuff. And when his neighbor gets a promotion and buys the latest Lexus SUV, he feels a little bit envious. He's a really good man. He's a high-character man. He's the kind of guy that walks around my cul-de-sac, and I think, that is, I, I don't like that guy because he's really good-looking, and he's a nice guy. And he's coaching his kid's baseball team. And they're good. He's irritating He's got all of the boxes checked, and I tend to be envious. And I'm envious that he's young and good-looking, and I'm envious of some of his stuff. And if you're in that place, then you're asking money to do for you what he cannot do. And not only is that a problem, it's an impediment. You're like three feet under the boat with a big old huge thing on your head and just a little bit, and you can't find Jesus. And then you end up feeling, I just feel so disconnected from church and from God. I don't feel alive. And we're surrounded by impediments. This is a very serious problem for people exactly like us. And we have to comprehend the reality of the problem. Secondly, this scripture tells us how to find relief. How do we relieve the burden of the impediment? We'll do this quickly. I'll I'll give you a couple of things to think about in relieving the burden of the impediment that money can create for us. Number one, if we're going to be relieved of the burden of the impediment of money and all of its stuff-buying capacity, we will have to realize that Jesus is all we need. That first song we sang, Thank you, John, all of you is more than enough for all of me. And you know, if we really got this truth, that song would break our heart. We would sing that song with all of our gusto instead of looking for where to sit and who's going to sit next to me. You are my supply, my bread of life. More awesome than I know, you're my coming king. You are everything. Still more awesome than I know. All of you is more than enough for all of me. For every thirst and every need. 
You satisfy me with your love. The first disciples, they leave everything to follow Jesus. Suppose someone had said to the first disciples, they were fishermen, suppose someone had said to the first disciples, hey, listen, uh, Peter and John, come here for a second. I got a deal for you. I guarantee you I've come from the future, and I've got, like, fishing methods that are not going to be discovered around here for about 1,600 years. Suppose I can guarantee that you're going to have not just a banner year this year, you're going to catch more fish this year than you caught the rest of your career combined. You're going to blow the competition away. You are going to own the market, Peter and John. This whole region, fish, it's yours. You get the real impression from these guys in their story that they wouldn't have been remotely tempted because they were beginning to sense that their life was turning upside down and something magnanimous, fantastic was about to happen. Thomas, some of you know the story of Thomas. Thomas, at the end of his life, he's been following Jesus. He's really discouraged. Jesus is crucified, and he doesn't get it. And they still don't really get fully what's happened. They're gathered in a room, and few of them have actually seen Jesus, and Thomas doesn't believe it. And Thomas says, you know, what are you talking about? Look, we've got to be real, guys. We've got to deal. This isn't, you know, hope. We've got to deal with reality. In fact, our lives may be on the line. We've got to recalibrate. We've got to think through this movement, and all of a sudden Jesus appears. And he shows Thomas his hands and feet, and he says, you know, basically, Thomas, it's me. And Thomas falls on his knees, and he says something remarkable to his friend Jesus. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You get the impression that if someone had come in at that moment, a great realtor had come in at that moment and offered Thomas a deal on a corner lot in the suburbs of Jerusalem, I believe that would have been completely immaterial to him. If we're going to be relieved of the burden of the impediment of money and its stuff-buying capacity, we're going to have to realize that Jesus is all we need. This is the challenge that Jesus issues to the rich young executive. But the rich young executive turns it down. He chooses the stuff which he already knows will not fully satisfy his emptiness. And that's why he's here. There are two problems with filling up our empty space with money and the stuff it can buy. There are two problems with trying the strategy of filling up our empty space with money and the stuff it can buy. Number one, it never satisfies. Again, he's here because it hasn't satisfied. And he's got it. Make no mistake, he's got it. Some of you heard the quote from John Rockefeller. John Rockefeller, at the height of his wealth, he was responsible for 2% of the, uh, America's gross domestic product, single-handedly. He was responsible for 2% of our country's gross domestic product. In response to the question, how much is enough, John Rockefeller once said, just a little bit more. Money and its stuff-buying capacity and the stuff that it buys will never fully satisfy. The second problem with trying to fill up our empty space with it is when we're rattled, when life shakes us up, then what we fill our empty space with is what comes out. So when we get rattled, what comes out of us is greed and overwork and self-absorption and a bunch of meaningless stuff. But when we fill our empty space with Jesus, then number one, he is enough and he satisfies. And number two, when we're rattled, what comes out of us is life-offering When we get in the most difficult circumstances, what comes out of us offers life to others and to ourselves. 
Have you ever known someone who was going through a really difficult time and yet their life was life-giving to you? How did they get that way? They filled themselves with Jesus. If we're going to be relieved of the burden of the impediment of money and all of its stuff-buying capacity, secondly, we'll have to remember that Jesus has already done what he's asking us to do. Let's wrap up with this. We've got to realize that he's enough. And secondly, we've got to remember that Jesus has already done what he's asking us to do. We've got to see this story in light of the larger Jesus story. And we have to remember, you know, Jesus was young. This is sometimes hard for me to remember. But Jesus was probably 32 when he had this encounter with this guy. Jesus was young, and he was also immensely rich. In fact, all of heaven was open to Jesus. He owned it. And the world beside, he created it. And Jesus was the preeminent ruler. Jesus was a rich young ruler, and yet he left all of that for us. He left that to show us God's love and to eliminate everything that separates us from God. Jesus has already done everything that he's asking us to do. So let's use this Lenten season to realize that Jesus is enough and to remember that he's already done what he's asking us to do. For some of us, in order to do this, that will mean for us that we may have to do violence. That's what Jesus asks of this rich young ruler. He says, you're going to have to do violence to your life as it is if you want the life that you really want. Some of us may have to do violence to our lives. So, some of us need to think about right now being serious. I promise you, if you're visiting with us, by the way, we are at the very beginning of a campaign. We're building a building uh, down the road and across the street as you get out towards 50. And we're right now starting a giving campaign toward that building. I did not preach a sermon about money because we're in the middle of a giving campaign for our building. However, some of us need to think about giving radically. Honestly, there are some of us who are thinking about the building campaign and we're thinking, I like it. That was a neat building we saw a couple of weeks ago. I'd like to give... I like to think about giving two or $3,000 to that. And some of us need to add a zero to that. We need to do violence. We need to step out of what's comfortable. Some of us are thinking, wow, I'd like to give $40,000 and we may need to quadruple that. Or forget that. Give your stuff to the, your favorite cause. Because God's desire done God's way will never lack God's supply. So we don't need your money. You need to give it. So find somewhere to give it. Some of you need to think about this season how you can give unimaginable amounts of money away. To unburden yourself. To remove the impediment. Many of us are doing a Lenten devotional together. And and this week, Evie Evie Showers has written this devotion for us, and Evie's going to ask us to do some weeding out. She's going to ask us to get rid of some stuff. And look, some of you love to organize, so this is going to be awesome for you. But let's don't do it for the purpose of organizing. Let's do it for the purpose of doing violence to the stuff in our life and the impediment that that stuff becomes to us. And I promise you, What you find, if you do enough work on getting rid of the stuff in your life, then you'll begin to see what it's blocking. 
and your life will open up to you. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton once said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less and less. Let's pray. We have so much in our way, God, it's hard to know even where to get started. We ask that you would help us. Help us reduce the clutter. Help us to help us to realize that Jesus is enough. And help us to remember he's already done what he's asked us to do. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.